Let's bow in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Baptist College of Ministry. Thank you for the students here and their heart to love you. Thank you for our special music, Lord, and the high quality and, and, the, and the biblical message that it gives. Thank you for your word. Thank you that even Old Testament, Lord, that we can still learn about your character and about how to live from that. Please guide me as I preach today and in Jesus' name, amen. We know that as New Testament Christians, we are not under the law. Acts 15 makes that very clear. The writings of the Apostle Paul make that very clear. The law has been superseded by Jesus Christ and by his gift of the Holy Spirit. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and the indwelling Holy Spirit is so much more superior than the law in helping us to walk and have a personal relationship with God. Some laws, such as circumcision, can actually be counterproductive if done with the intent to get closer to God or to keep God's commandments. The Apostle Paul makes that very clear in Galatians 5. In fact, the Apostle Paul reserves his harshest rhetoric to those who would force Gentile Christians like us to live according to the law. When, to try to live according to the law when you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you is, like, is as foolish as trying to merge onto I-94 on a moped when your parents have just bought you a Ferrari. It just doesn't make sense. And yet, as a result of the law being unnecessary for Gentile salvation and sanctification, we also get to enjoy some things that the Jews, in obedience to God, could not. As one famous theologian said, Jesus saved my soul, but Peter's vision saved my bacon. Amen? <laughs> yet, having said that, we do not throw the law under the bus. We do not treat it as some sort of archaic legalism, which, by the way, is how some, how some people treat it. There's one megachurch pastor that said something audacious, and I, I use that word deliberately. He said, Jesus came to save us from the Ten Commandments. No, that's absurd. The Ten Commandments reflect the character of God. We still have something learned from that. In fact, for the pious Jew that begins by faith, the law as a form of obedience was actually beneficial. It was a delight, Psalm 1-2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. That's the law. That's the Torah. The fact that the Holy Spirit has superseded the law and revealing even more clearly the character of God does not mean that the law was bad, far from it. In fact, even today, 2,000 years later, after Christ's coming, there are still elements of the law that are transcendent principles that we can learn and apply to our lives. That's why, uh, that's why the Ten Commandments is still worth studying. We do not throw out the Ten Commandments. So I'd like to look at Commandment 5 to start out with, and let me just recommend real quick uh, two very helpful resources, Mark Rooker's The Ten Commandments and then David L. Baker on the Decalogue. Uh, they're both Old Testament scholars, and they're both very good at just showing the background of the Ten Commandments, their significance, their cultural significance, and how they apply to us today. Out of these two, I would give a slight edge to Mark Rooker. His book's a little bit more readable. However, full, full disclosure, I'm a little bit biased because I had the privilege of being his grading assistant for a semester, and he's a very nice guy. So, uh, But both of these are beneficial beneficial books. We briefly, uh, briefly, for 35 minutes, we focused on the first commandment last semester, and I really brought out two key elements, necessity and equality. You have others before God in God's presence. You have other gods in God's presence. When you make something necessary besides God, this is necessary to me. I need this. And when you make something equal to God in phrases such as only God and this. Nothing is necessary to our well-being other than God, and nothing is equal to God. So in light of that, let's jump to the fifth commandment. Now, the fifth commandment, the placement is key. 
It stands between our relationship to fellow humans and our relationship to God. Philo, that first century Jewish Platonic, often brilliant, often incredibly bizarre philosopher, wrote something I think is, is very apropos. Parents stand by their nature on the borderline between the mortal and the immortal. Because the act of generation assimilates them to God, the generator of them all. In an ideal world, parents are the first ones to represent God to us. We learn about God's love through our parents' love. We learn about God's displeasure of sin through our parents' displeasure of sin. We learn about God's justice, but we learn about God's mercy as well through our parents. Yet what exactly does it mean to honor? A few years ago, an alumnus of the college and seminary here asked me a very good practical question. How do I, at my age, and I'm almost 41 now, how do I at my age honor my father? And my instinctive response may sound a little bit shallow at first, but I think it was on the right track. My instinctive response was, I catch a baseball game with him. <laughs> now, that's a little bit simplistic, but I think there's some truth there, and here's why. At its core, the Hebrew word for honor is kavad, to have weight, to have value. You value something and when, when you value something, it is very obvious externally. When you value something, you spend time with it of your own accord for positive reasons. I value baseball. You know that because I spend a lot of time listening to baseball. I do not value golf. I do not spend any time watching it or listening to it. In fact, I, I so detest golf, I would rather watch the freshman's opera production of the BCM's college handbook rather than to watch golf. <laughs> Which now that I think about it, that actually has a lot of potential for amusement there. <laughs> so the question is, in light of that, how do I honor my parents? I think an often overlooked aspect of that is that you simply spend time with them. So I honor my parents. That means that last Thursday, I spent time with them by beating them at Racco. Actually, my father beat my mom and I in Racco, but he won't let us forget that. Sometimes I win, though. So I spend time with them by playing something as simple as Racco. Why? Because beyond platitudes, you know, I love my parents. Beyond platitudes, you've got to prove it. You've got to show that they have value in your life, and you do that by spending time with them. It means catching a baseball game with my dad or throwing a football with him. It means having an actual conversation in my, with my mother that involves my looking her in the eye and listening to what she has to say without sneaking looks at glimpses at the sports score while she's talking. That can be very difficult for guys to do sometimes. In other words, to truly honor your parents, it is not simply enough to confess sin, with, sin to them or to make sure you are hiding no secrets from them. Obviously, that's assumed. That's all good and well. But you, or, or to generally try to be pleasant to them. If that's all you're doing, then your parents really have no more value in your life than the dean of students or the dean of men. Now, some of you actually spend more time with the dean of men than you do with your own parents. <laughs> Not because you like him, right? <laughs> Necessarily. <laughs> Yet by virtue of your parents being your parents, they deserve to have more quality time with you than your boss or the dean of students. Even if it's just a 20-minute phone conversation. I mean, if you're in a different village from them than a different city from them, then yeah, you can't hang out with them every Thursday night. You can call them, you can email them, you can write them a letter. You can spend time with them that way as well. And by doing so, you show that they have value in your life. 
Now, there's more to this command, though, than just spending time with them. And the more I, I study the scholarship on, on this command, the more I realized I was forgetting about a key aspect of society that is very obvious to someone 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, and is very obvious even today to people living in Asia, but something that we've totally forgotten about in America. And that is making sure your parents are taken care of. The Apostle Paul wrote, but if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. The Apostle Paul did not create that application out of thin air. It came from the fifth commandment. And so often, I, I think, and I, I've done this as well, we think of this command as sort of the reverse. Parents take care of your kids. And in a general sense, that is true. This is a broader application. Parents take care of your kids. This is a broader application of the principle. But in its context, it's actually the reverse. It's talking about taking care of widows. Those of her own household should take care of her first before the church has to. So it applies to us. Now, this may look different in different circumstances. In America, you know, nursing homes are very popular. Those may be appropriate for certain circumstances, but they may not be for other circumstances. Charlie Trim, a professor at Biola, has written a, a recent article entitled, Honor Your Parents, A Command for Adults. It has a very helpful discussion on the difference between nursing homes and, and having a parent live with you in your home, and I think that's, that's very relevant. I want to read a quote here, though. My wife worked in a nursing home for a time and collected many stories about interactions between children and parents. Some of them were wonderful, such as a man who would visit his mother every day even though she could no longer meaningfully interact with the world. Unfortunately, most of the stories were negative, such as the young lady who only visited her mother to take her to the bank to withdraw money and returned her to the steps of the nursing home, not even accompanying her back to her room. Those of you that have worked in a nursing home, ministered in a nursing home, you know what it's like, right? For some of them, there's absolutely no contact with anybody from the outside world, not, not their children, not their parents. My father always thought that the reason that Japanese people generally outlive American people is because Japanese people take care of their parents better, and I believe that's true, and I believe we see that principle within this commandment itself. So number one, how do I honor my parents? I spend time with them. Something that I consider valuable is something that I spend time with. Number two, how do I honor my parents? I make sure that they're taken care of in their old age. There's no one-size-fits-all one rule for this, but at the very least, you need to be considering this. You all right now, your parents may not quite be as young as you think they are. You all right now need to be considering this point. Number three, your speech. In the Talmud, there's a story of a wicked son who grudgingly took care of his father, even spending a lot of money on him, buying him the best food, yet without honoring him. A man once fed his father on pheasants. When his father asked him how he could afford them, he responded, what business is it of yours, old man? Grind and eat. Now, for the record, if I talked like that to my dad, he would whop me upside of the head, as he likes to say. <laughs> Obviously, such a son is missing the point of honor. In his eyes, his father is not worth re speaking respectfully to. So the question is, how do we speak to our parents? Now, I don't mean that you should have to speak to your father or your mother as you would a king or a queen. Oh, your great majesty, I hope your parents don't require you to speak to them that way. But you should certainly not speak to them as you would a referee at a basketball game, right? And that's a different sermon for a different time, actually. <laughs> If somebody were to be listening into your average conversation with your parents, what would they think? Would it become obvious that they are valuable to you? Or would it sound like they are an annoyance to you, a hindrance to your desires and your plans? 
We speak in glowing terms of our favorite sports team, of our favorite athletes. You know, that, that Aaron Rodgers, he's so awesome. We speak in glowing terms even of our favorite speaker, of our favorite preachers, right? Do we ever speak in glowing terms of our parents? In your dorm room, what is the impression your roommates get of your parents? Do they hear you speaking of your parents and think, man, it would be kind of cool to meet them someday? You know, oh, they're coming. Oh, cool. You know, given your description of them, I hope to be able to meet them someday. Or do they think, man, I'm glad they're not my parents. What impression do you give your roommates and how you talk about your parents? This does not mean you can never express disagreement with your parents or disappointment with them. If your parents are considering a divorce, which is more common than it should be, even within independent Baptist circles, if your parents are considering a divorce, by all means, bring that up for prayer in your dorm room. Don't gloss over sin. By all means, express concern to your parents. Quote scripture to them. Not at them, but to them. There's a difference. Yet it is precisely because you honor your parents that such things would grieve you. It is precisely because your parents are valuable to you that it should be a surprise if they were to fall into sin. And your roommates should be just as surprised as you if that ever happens. So honor your parents with your speech. The bottom line is, do you spend time with your parents, even if that's just a long-distance phone conversation, to the extent that you are able? Are you prepared to make sure that your parents are taken care of in their old age, whatever that might mean? And does your speech, both to your parents and about your parents in your dorm room, does your speech honor your parents? Now, two practical points I want to close out this command with before we move on. Number one, the command is universal and it is meant for adults. And Charlie Trim's excellent article uh, just a couple years ago makes this point very well. It's funny, some people take this command sort of embedded within the, all these commands given to Israel, specifically the Israelite men, the heads of the households, but some people suddenly take the fifth command and think that it applies to children. Well, no. That would be very odd if only one out of the Ten Commandments somehow applied to children. No, this command applies to adults. It is universal. The moral obligation to honor and to take care of your parents continues no matter where you are, no matter how far you are removed from your parents. And the two go hand in hand. In fact, Jesus even went so far in Matthew 15, 4 through 6, in speaking to adult males, he even went so far as to harshly rebuke them for giving money to God's work that could have gone to take care of their parents. In fact, these were people that had such an issue with their parents that they were taking money that was supposed to go to help support their parents and giving it to God's work and then trying to sound super pious about it. And Jesus had a huge problem with that. So the obligation to respect and ensure they are taken care of and speak positively of your parents endures no matter how old you are. However, this brings up the other point, the command overlaps with but is not identical to obedience. Ezekiel 20, 18 through 19 says this, But I said unto their children in the wilderness, Walk ye not in the statutes of your fathers, neither observe their judgments, nor defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God, walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. Ephesians 6, 1 commands, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Jesus in Luke 14, 26 uses shock language to say, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother, he cannot be my disciple. Did Jesus literally mean hate? Well, no, that would sort of be the contradiction of, of this key command. And yet, Jesus is using hyperbole to make a point that in the scale of values, God is the one you must honor the most and be the loyal to the most. The Japanese firstborn son who is kicked out of his house for refusing to take the pagan god shelf that is passed down by generation to generation, he is 
Well, he is putting Jesus Christ first in his life because he has to. He should still honor his parent, though, but he may not be able to obey him in those circumstances. The American missionary who displeases his father because he goes on the mission field instead of taking over the family business, well, he should still honor his parents. That command does not, does not go away, but he may have to go against his parents' wishes in such a cases. Now, this does not mean that you use God's name as an excuse to go against your parents' wishes. Mom and Dad, I just feel that the Lord is leading me to drop out of Bible college and pursue a lucrative career in bagpipe repair. Or, Mom and Dad, I know you don't want me to marry Bubba Joe, but, you know, he says he's a Christian. I know, I know he hangs out with the motorcycle gang all the time, but, you know, he says he's a Christian. Yeah, I, I just feel the Lord's leading me to marry him. Okay? No, in those cases, not only have you, are you violating the fifth command, you're also violating the command against taking the name of the Lord's Lord in vain, as we shall see. Yet it does clarify... When, when we understand these other passages, it, it does clarify what honoring your parents does not mean. It does not mean glossing over sin. It does not mean allowing, especially when you're an adult and have your own family, it does not mean allowing their toxicity, toxicity to destroy your own family. And there are cases where that happens. It does not mean subjecting yourself to abuse. I, I praise the Lord that for most of us, hopefully all of us, that has never been an issue. I praise God that I have never doubted that my parents have loved me. But it is precisely because your ultimate loyalty is to Jesus Christ first and foremost that you can honor your parents even on those rare but not rare enough occasions where as an adult, you and your family may be in opposition to your parents', to your parents wishes. It is because you honor Jesus Christ first. But even in those cases, once again, the command is to adults and is a universal command. You do not stop honoring your parents. Your parents may be toxic. They may be hostile to your relationship with Jesus Christ. You still have the obligation to, to the extent that you are able, spend time with them, even if that's just a phone call. Make sure that they are taken care of in their old age and to be careful about your speech around others and to them. You must always expend, extend God's grace to them, no matter what the circumstances. Now, going backwards to the fourth commandment now, keep the Sabbath. A couple years ago during summer school, I preached an entire sermon on this, on the Sabbath principle. Notice I say the Sabbath principle because it's a principle, not a conspiracy. The Seventh-day Adventist, this is so bizarre. I, this was about maybe three years ago in Reader's Digest. I saw an ad put out by the Seventh-day Adventist about Pope Francis. And the entire ad in Reader's Digest was all about this conspiracy theory about how Pope Francis is going to basically force people to start working on Saturdays. <laughs> and among other things, it became very clear in that Reader's Digest ad that many Seventh-day Adventists actually expect to be martyred for refusing to work or worship on a, uh, for refusing to work on a Saturday. Like that's how, how closely they are tied to that, to that issue. This is a far cry from the Apostle Paul, who in Romans 14, 5, in a context that is dealing with the, different, the differences between Jews and Gentiles, the Apostle Paul said, one man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. In Acts 15.20, a, a very, key, uh, very key passage for understanding our relationship to law, James is emphasizing the key transcendent principles of the Torah that apply to Gentiles, such as don't, don't become involved in idolatry, uh, food offered idols, and don't, don't commit fornication, don't drink blood, those, those sorts of things. That goes all the way back to the Noahic covenant before the Torah. But he never has a word to say about the Sabbath. 
which would have been something extremely practical, but he never has a word to say about the Sabbath day. Having said that, it is a principle. It did not begin with Israel. It did not begin with Moses or, or Abraham. It goes all the way back to the creation. Genesis 2, 1 through 3, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. This was not merely done for Israel. This was done for all humanity. Notice the implication here. Work is good. How do we know that? Because God did it. It may not always feel that way, but work is good. And so is rest after you've worked, not during your work, especially not during class. God intended us to experience a positive feeling when we work, and then we can enjoy the fruits of our labor. Now, has that ability to enjoy work been corrupted by the fall? Sure. One of the key curses is the ground that you're tilling is now going to be a lot harder to till. Thorns and so forth. And yet, the principle still remains. I worked for three years in a factory when I was going to seminary in Pennsylvania. And in a factory, it was dirty, it was grungy, it was Difficult, I was, I, it was fiber line, called fiber line, we wrapped fiber, and I was a winder, so I would wind fiber and put it into packages and so forth. One particular type of fiber had something on it called swell coat. And swell coat was designed, it, it goes into cables, and it's designed when water hits it to swell up and protect the, protect the wires. And I worked with that stuff, and it gets in your hair. And I worked second shift, and sometimes by the time I got home from, from the factory, I was just so, so messed up with all sorts of stuff in my hair and all that. And yet, here's the weird thing. On a good day, despite the fact that it was grungy and dirty and hard work, on a good day, it would go by like that. When everything was going to plan, when all the machines were working, none of them were breaking down, when my boss was in a good mood, and he usually was, when my coworkers weren't playing heavy metal too loud, you know, when, when on a good day, some of you know what I mean, on a good day, I would get home and say, wow, I feel good. And I would sleep so well. That's how God intended it to be. He intended us to work hard and then to enjoy that rest. Exodus 28 through 11. Now, worship does play a role in the idea of the Sabbath. There should be a day devoted to worship. It doesn't necessarily have to be the same day we rest, I don't think. But the main point of the Sabbath is rest from work. And Exodus 28 through 9 makes that point clear. Furthermore, the pattern of work and rest points to an eschatological reality. There remaineth therefore rest to the people of God, for he that has entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works as God did from his. The pattern of work and rest is pointing to the ultimate rest that awaits the people of God when Jesus Christ sets everything right and we can enjoy God's presence forever. So though we, through work and rest, we imitate the character of God, yet there is also a second principle here, and that is the principle of faith. Stephen McAlpine writes, In the ancient world the Israelites inhabited, work was your savior. If you worked, you ate. So when God commands Israel to rest on the Sabbath, to do no work, he is making a daring statement. Your salvation shall be found in me and not in your labors. In other words, when Israel took a day off, they were saying to the rest of the world, unlike you, our God is awesome enough to take care of us that seventh day. Unlike you, our God is so awesome, we don't have to work every single day of the week. Remember when manna came? God said, 
just work extra hard on, on Friday, and on the next day, it'll be enough. But don't work on the next day. And God thought, thought, thought so seriously of this command that it was capital punishment to work on the Sabbath day. Why? Because by working, you are expressing disbelief in God, that God is incapable of taking care of you. This is not a minor matter. Mark Rooker writes, we express our belief that ultimately we are not dependent on our own work, but that God is sovereign in our lives and our work, and our lives are under his control. Sabbath observance places a clear limit on human autonomy. Some may say, well, the devil never takes a day off, and, and neither will I. Well, the question is, whose example are we supposed to follow, right? God or the devil's? <laughs> the man or woman who follows God's example and takes a day off declares, in essence, the world will not fall apart if I rest. The world will not fall apart if I take a day to, to picnic in the park. God's ministry is quite capable of going on without me if I take my son to the ball game. Former chaplain of the United States Senate, Peter Marshall, died at age 46 due to heart trouble. After his first heart attack, as he's recovering, he, he was asked by somebody what he had learned from the, from the ordeal. I think his, his answer is profound. Peter Marshall responded, I learned that the kingdom of God goes on without Peter Marshall. Can each of us say that? And may I say from experience, both idleness and hard work are open doors to temptation. And hard work, both idleness and hard work, will lead to bad health as well. The Japanese have a word for death from overwork. It's karoshi. It happens. And God does not exempt Christians from that possibility either. Just because we're doing God's work does not mean we are immune to that. Robert Murray McShane was one of the greatest Scottish preachers of the first half of the 19th century, a powerful preacher. He died at age 29 through health issues brought on through overwork. He is reported as saying shortly before he died, God gave me a message to deliver and a horse to ride. Alas, I have killed the horse and now I cannot deliver the message. Take a day off. Your ministry will continue without you. <laughs> It will survive. Take a day off. The world will not crash and burn if you're not there. <laughs> now, there is a key exception to this rule, though. Mark 3, 1 through 5, Jesus himself modeled this exception by healing somebody on the Sabbath. Compassion must be the overriding principle here. Compassion, love for your neighbor, is key. If necessary, that should cause you to work on your day off. So imagine you're out on your day off, and ring, ring, somebody's calling from your church. It's, it's uh, Bubba Joe, a good member of your church. And he says, uh, he says that his whole family is in the hospital with COVID, and his dog just got kidnapped by ISIS, and he just got laid off from his asbestos factory, and just he's in trouble, and he needs you to come and pray with him. Oh, I'm sorry, Bubba Joe. I know you're having a rough day, and, you know, that's too, too bad about your family. But it's my day off, so I really can't help you. I'm, I'm on the golf course with my son, and we're getting in 18 holes. Actually, I'm getting in 18 holes. He's carrying the club. Same difference. <laughs> See you later. Okay, we have just violated the more important principle, something that is more important than the Sabbath, and that is compassion for humans. So Jesus modeled this principle. Jesus tried to rest. <laughs> he did. He tried to go up in the mountains to rest with his disciples. He was modeling that principle, but when necessary, he let the compassion, his compassion for the multitudes override that principle. So remember that as well. Now, how in the world do we apply this as college students? <laughs> I don't know. I was not the best model of this principle. 
I hadn't really studied it out. At one point in grad school, I was working three jobs, and every other week I would work uh, uh, the, my second security job, which was basically 16 hours over the weekend. So every other week, I did not have a single day for two weeks. No, excuse me, every other week, I did not have a day off from work. And I don't think I had a day off from studies either. And so I have not always modeled this very well. And frankly, I think I would have been better off today if I had. If I had just expressed faith that, okay, God will help me figure out how this will work. Also, I, it, I know it's, it's difficult as college students, and it, it may be necessary to do just some creative thinking in this line. Okay, maybe this day will be my day off work, and that day will be my day off, study, off of studies. I don't know. But it's important. When you graduate especially, be thinking, do I have enough character to work hard five to six days of the week? But do I have enough faith to take that one day off? I think it looks like, uh, looks like we're just about out of, actually, no, I'm sorry, it's, it's 11. Okay, good, I have, I have time for one more commandment, I think, to go over. The third commandment, just a few brief points here. The way, the, the, the way it's phrased in Hebrew is literally, do not raise the name of Yahweh your God for emptiness. Or you could translate that for falsehood. Mark Rooker does an excellent job in his book on just talking about the significance of raising a name in ancient society like a banner over capturing a city. Names are never insignificant in scripture. Everybody knew what their name was back then, though I, I pity the poor family that named Nabal, right? Fool. The most immediate and practical application is the swearing of oaths that are false. God must never be associated with falsehood. In fact, Jesus took this a step further in Matthew 5, 34 through 37 by stating that you shouldn't even need to evoke anything sacred to make your point. You should be so trustworthy, people can just take you at your word. You don't need to bring in God or the temple or the church, which would be kind of odd in this generation. By Falls Baptist Church, it's true. But you shouldn't have to do that. Don't take the sacred in order to make a point. Don't take the sacred in order that people will believe you. Either they believe you on the basis of your character or they don't. Now this raises some interesting questions about formal oaths in modern society. William Penn, among, among others, the Anabaptists, were very uncomfortable about taking oaths. Uh, it, it has been pointed out that under certain circumstances there do seem to be exceptions. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1.9 did bring in God as a witness to a key theological point he was trying to make. There do seem to be exceptions, but it is something to consider. More broadly speaking, however, there is a second application. In vain, lash shavin refers to any time we link the sacred with the common, whether it be falsehood or simply that which is mundane and empty. Let me give you a silly illustration to make this point. Imagine that on your wedding, wedding day, your parents gift you with a set of very expensive, very fine china. In case, I don't know, you want to invite someone special over to your, to your house someday, like the governor or the dean of students or somebody like that, somebody very important. And let's say that one day your parents show up and they see what you've done with your china. They see one of them is a dish for the cat to eat out of, and the other, they catch your, your son throwing it as a frisbee to the dog. How would they feel? might perhaps they decide not to gift you with anything expensive ever again, right? Why? Is there anything inherently wrong with using a dish to feed your cat? That depends on how you feel about cats. But probably not, right? 
Is there inherent, anything inherently wrong with throwing a Frisbee with your dog? No. The problem is you took something sacred and special and made it mundane. So also is the name of God. The name of God, properly speaking, is Yahweh, but I believe this applies broadly to not just his proper name, but to all his titles, and that includes God, that includes Lord. Any way of referring to God must be with, with the deliberate understanding that I am treating it respectfully and sacredly. Even something like talking to God in a casual, talking about God in a casual manner, such as, quote-unquote, the man upstairs, even that is at a minimum treading on thin ice. Everything associated with God, his name and his titles, must be sacred, not something to be used casually in excitement or in anger and frustration. I doubt that that's too much of a problem here, but I think there's some other ways in which we can profane God's name. Baker writes, God's name may be used lightly in other ways, for example, by attributing personal desires and plans to him. Could it be that the platitudes of the pious are more of a problem than the curses of the atheists? Well, I just think it's God's will for me to do this. But if you haven't actually been praying deeply about it, intensely about it, then you don't have a right to say that. When we claim the will of God for something we want to do, something that makes sense for our own agenda, when we really haven't sought his face, we are utilizing what is sacred for our own desires. We are blaspheming. And in fact, to ever say something that is clearly a sin is God's will, I think it's God's will that I divorce my wife. That is just flat-out blasphemy. One more related point. I like what C.K. Barrett, the great Scottish New Testament scholar, said about thy will be done. When we use that phrase in our own personal, uh, personal spiritual walk, thy will be done, the phrase that is as commonly used is blasphemy. Some awful possibility lies before us. We do everything in our power to avert it. We fail and we finally say, having exhausted every possibility, thy will be done. To say this implies at least two horrible presuppositions. First, it means that God's will is a dreadful thing to be avoided at all costs. And, it, and second, it means we've tried everything we know to get our own will. And only when all that has failed do we say, well, God, I can't have it my way. I suppose you had better have yours. No, that is not what the Lord taught us to ask. For to come to God as a last resort and to say, all right, have it your own way. He lived and taught in the spirit of the man in the Psalms who cried out, I delight to do thy will, O God. He means that you should say, I know that what you will is the finest and best thing I can possibly do, and for that reason, and because I love you, I want to do it. May it be done. And I love this last line, thy will be done is never a phrase to sit down on, it is a phrase to stand up on. In other words, to declare thy, to declare thy will be done as a last resort, as a surrender of sorts, is to treat God's name and that which is associated with him as a vain thing. It is to view God's will as less than ideal, Backup plan, plan B, only when you can't get your own way. To resist God's will, as for example Jonah did, to resist God's will and follow your own path is a form of blasphemy because you are saying that which is associated with God is not worthy of my consideration. And that's why especially here at BCM, with, with all the preaching you have, be seeking God's will. Be seeking what he has, what he wants you to do. Do not have the audacity to say, it is God's will to do this, unless you've actually prayed intensely about it. Very briefly, I think we have a little bit of time for the second commandment about idols. I, I don't think any of you have a problem with idols per se. I haven't been in the dorm rooms, but you know, I, I'm sure Mr. Mark would be very, very quick to throw any out in the trash. <laughs> 
My dad and I sometimes get a little bit annoyed with the way idolatry is just so watered down sometimes. To be fair, I mean, covetousness is idolatry. The Apostle Paul made that clear. But sometimes we, we watered down the term so much that it's like any sin can be idolatry. It's like, you know, oh, I stubbed my, I stubbed my foot and I was upset. I guess that's an idol in my life. Well, sort of, but not exactly. You've got to have lived in an actually idolatrous country to truly appreciate what idolatry is. The context in Deuteronomy seems to be primarily in regards to worship. The temple itself contained images of cherubim, so there must have been exceptions for artistic purposes, but even their caution must be exercised. Statues of people and animals are especially dangerous, and, they should, and we should be cautious in that. Please never allow someone to make a statue of you, okay? or at least not while you're living. Okay? So what... So what exactly then is, is more of a practical application for us today that perhaps something that may be relevant to us? Baker writes, idolatry is bringing God down to earth and making him, the image, making him in the image of mankind. It is convenient because God is confined within limits that we feel safe with. It is comfortable because God is domesticated, leaving us feeling that we can control our lives. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, God is not a tame God. In other words, anytime we try and make God fit within our box, that is a form of making a graven image. God, is not, God does not exist to fulfill our own personal mission, no matter how noble that might be. He does not exist to help us gain the American dream with a two-car garage and 2.5 kids and good dental insurance, as desirable as that might be. He does not even help us to live the American pastor's dream which would be more along the lines of everybody in your church giving 15% and every, never fighting over the doctrine of election and never fighting over what sort of donuts to bring, right? God exists first and foremost for himself and for his glory, his graciousness, his kindness, his love. He invites us to be participants in that glory. The other problem is making Jesus in our own image. And as, as you take Hebrew history with me, we spend a lot of time focusing on that. The, the failure of European scholarship in the 1800s and early 1900s was in making Jesus into their own image, making him into the strong, bold, radical Aryan, unhampered by such wimpy Jewish notions as forgiveness of your enemies. Yeah, everybody does that to some degree. If we're not careful, Americans can do the same thing. Either on the left, we make Jesus into Barack Obama, and last semester we saw how there was messianic language associated with President Obama. Yet on the right, we can remake Jesus into a white middle-class Republican with an impressive gun collection, because that's what we want to be, right? <laughs> some of us, at least. We must understand that Jesus is not some charismatic politician who joins forces with us to, to make America great again. Jesus is, not, Jesus is the desire of all nations, not just our nation. Isaiah 40 says, Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are as counted as the small dust of the balance. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing in vanity. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare unto him? To whom then will you liken me? Or who shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Accept God on his terms. Do not make him the means to the end of achieving your own goals and achieving your own dreams. Yet it's worth asking, where is the image of God found then? Not in our own dreams, not in anything we might physically create, but it's first and foremost found in Jesus Christ, and we know that. But it's also found in us. We are the image bearers. Do people look at you and see first and foremost the image of God with your character? 
It's interesting, I think one good reason why the BCM handbook has rules against what you wear on, on your t-shirts, the logos and so forth, I think one of those reasons is that, not that they are inherently evil, but rather the BCM wants you, to, wants you to be first and foremost the image bearer of God before you are the image bearer of Nike. People must look at you and first and foremost see Christian, not American, not Republican, not fan of this favorite sports team, but Christian, an image bearer of God. So just to recap real quick, I, I, want, I focused a lot on the fifth commandment because I think that's probably the most relevant. So how's your relationship with your parents? Do you honor them? By which I believe we could ask, do you spend time with them? Even if that's just a, maybe 20 minutes a week on a phone conversation. Do you talk about them appropriately? Have you started thinking, you know, how will I take care of them? Are they taken care of? Secondly, how do you treat the name of God? Are you respectful to it? That which is associated with God. And then thirdly, or rather secondly, Something to consider. I don't even know how to apply this strictly to college students right now, but something to be considering. There is a principle of rest that reflects the character of God. And then finally, how have we remade God in our own, own image? Let's bow for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your revelation of your own character, your revelation through the law, and, and we recognize the law was... Not, not nearly as, as awesome as the Holy Spirit in hel helping us walk with you, but it still does reflect your character. May we remember that. May we read the law with that point in mind. We thank you that we are not under the law like the Jews, but we thank you that we can still learn from it. Help us, Lord, first and foremost, to be considerate of our parents, to respect them, to honor them as you would have us honor them. Help us to remember that rest is not a sin when it follows good work. Rest reflects your character. Help us to remember that your name is sacred, and all that is associated with your name is sacred. May we not make light of it and help us to remember not to remake you in our own image. May we always be image bearers of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.